Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Unlikely Heroes. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Desmond Thomas Doss was born in 1919 in Lynchburg, Virginia. He was raised in a blue-collar home in the 1920s and 30s. When America became embroiled in World War II in the 1940s, Doss enlisted in the U.S. Army in order to serve his country. However, There was one thing that set Desmond Doss apart from all of his fellow soldiers. Because he was raised in a Seventh-day Adventist home, Doss was a conscientious objector to the war. His parents had taught him to avoid violence at all costs, to keep the Sabbath strictly, and to eat a vegetarian diet. For these reasons, Doss refused to kill an enemy soldier or to carry a weapon into combat. Well, after discovering this, the army decided to make him a medic and assigned him to a platoon. For the next two to three years, Doss's convictions about violence made him the object of vicious ridicule by his fellow soldiers because they considered him a liability and a coward. This all changed when Doss did something no one expected and hardly anyone would ever do. In the spring of 1945, during the Battle of Okinawa, Doss's battalion assaulted a 400-foot-high cliff, gained control of the summit, but then became overwhelmed by Japanese artillery, artillery excuse me, and machine gun fire. With the Japanese right in front of them, and a 400-foot cliff behind them, his battalion basically became like fish in a barrel, as they say. After 75 of his fellow soldiers were wounded, Doss dragged them one by one back to the cliff and lowered them by hand using a a rope and a a stretcher that he created from just materials he could find around him. Over the next few weeks, this unlikely hero would display amazing courage in several other ways in different battles, earning him the respect of his comrades. The war ended uh, just a few months later, and in the fall of 1945, after the war ended, Private First Class Desmond Doss became the only conscientious objector to ever win the Medal of Honor. And he was awarded that by President Harry Truman. Doss's life has been the subject of several books and films, including the 2016 Hollywood movie bearing the same name as the cliff that he lowered his fellow soldiers down. Hacksaw Ridge starred Andrew Garfield, was directed by Mel Gibson, and received critical acclaim. I think God has wired us all to be astonished and intrigued by courage. 
Because of this, we love to read books and watch films about unlikely heroes that demonstrate uncommon courage. I suppose it's because they inspire us to want to do the same thing. Today, I'd like to introduce you to another unlikely hero who demonstrated uncommon courage that I hope will inspire you to do the same. And so we're continuing our series in the Hall of Faith today called Unlikely Heroes. I'd like to invite you to open up God's Word with me to Hebrews chapter 11. And if you forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have Bibles we can loan you. Hebrews chapter 11. Our theme verse in this series has been verse 6 in Hebrews 11. Let's read it out loud together. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And we've been learning throughout this series that some professing believers do not live a life that's pleasing to God because they do not live by faith. The Lord loves it when we live by faith because it shows that we have confidence in who he is and what he said about himself. And thus, as I've said earlier in this series, he commends and rewards faith, as verse 6 says here. He incentivizes it so that we will do and live by faith because it's worthwhile to him. Hebrews chapter 11 was written to a group of new Christ followers who had been saved out of Judaism. They were experiencing intense persecution for following Christ. Their friends were deserting the faith, and they were considering doing the same. And so, as we've been learning throughout the series, the author of Hebrews uh, recounts the lives of a few Old Testament heroes who trusted the Lord against all odds and kept the faith. Another difficult time that we will all encounter when it is difficult to live by faith is when the Lord pushes or maybe pulls us to take a risk for him. Thus, our big idea today is this. Uh, living faith provides the courage needed to obey the Lord. Living faith provides the courage needed to obey the Lord. And this, be, this is because, as I said earlier, having a living faith means having confidence in who God is, who he says he is, and that he will do what he says he's going to do. And so when we have that confidence in him, it enables us, it makes it easier for us to obey him when he calls us to do things that look illogical, maybe look scary, might lead us into the unknown, or might be difficult to do. We need past faith heroes to help us exercise present faith because the Lord's church is in one of its most anemic, anemic seasons in its entire history. Too many local churches have taken the path of least resistance by becoming more like the culture instead of changing it, more like a cruise ship instead of a battleship, and more like a doormat than a doorway to a better life 
through faith in Jesus Christ. The times in which we live have created an increasing need for more and more daring Christ followers. We need more Christ followers who are willing to take risks when called upon by the Lord because they are confident in the one who is calling. And so as we near the end of our guided tour through the Hall of Faith, the author stops in front of a statue of Rahab, the prostitute. And he asks, before we move on near the end of our tour, hey, before we leave Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, have you heard the -the behind-the-scenes story about Rahab and what she did before the Battle of Jericho? And so if you would, look at your Bibles with me. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, the author writes, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now you've heard me already mention that this uh, two-word prepositional phrase, by faith, appears before each hero in the hall as a reminder of what enabled them to do what they did for the Lord. But did you know that by faith appears 18 times? This is the 18th time, excuse me, that it shows up in chapter 11. A good Bible study principle to keep in mind when you're doing your morning devotions is to look for why something is repeated in the passage to look for any repeated terms or phrases or phrases or phrases. In Hebrews chapter 11, 11, 11, I think the author wants to make sure we never forget the means that enabled these people to be used by the Lord. It was their faith. It it was their faith in the Lord and nothing else. It was was not their self-confidence. It was not this pull up the bootstraps, work ethic. It wasn't that. It wasn't uh, because they had once-in-a-generation talent like LeBron James or Zion Williamson from Duke University, if you've been watching the NCAA tournament. It was their faith in the Lord. And verse 31 is yet another attempt by the author of Hebrews to encourage his readers. He is saying, in essence, if God can use a prostitute, then he can certainly use you or anybody else he chooses to help you. It's worth noting before we move on from Hebrews 11 here that there are two women mentioned in the Hall of Faith, Sarah and Rahab. This is yet another example of how the Lord held women in higher esteem than the culture in which they lived and how valuable they were to his sovereign plans. However, both women couldn't have been more different. Sarah, think about it, was a godly Hebrew woman married to a godly Hebrew man named Abraham. Sarah's body would be used to establish a nation with the birth of her son Isaac. Rahab was an ungodly, unmarried, Gentile woman who sold her body to satisfy lustful men. So two very different women. Now last week we learned about how the Lord partnered 
with the people of Israel in the famous battle of Jericho. If you missed that message, you can check it out online or on our podcast. But inspired by the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews has made it clear that there's someone else in the story he wants us to know about and not forget. So please, if you would turn with me in your Bibles back to Joshua chapter 2 so we can get the rest of the story. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua comes after the book of Deuteronomy, but before Judges. And as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context, uh, just real quick. At the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses passes the baton of leadership to his protege, Joshua, and then Moses passes away and goes home to be with the Lord. Joshua had been Moses' apprentice in training throughout the 40 years the people of Israel were in the wilderness. The book of Joshua documents the military campaign that allowed the people of Israel to take possession of the land that God had promised them in the Abrahamic covenant. We studied that earlier in this series. It's in Genesis 12 through 17. Joshua's job was to lead the people of Israel across the Jordan River into the land of Canaan, drive out its occupants, and then divide the land across the 12 tribes of Israel. The first strategic target that needed to be captured by God's people was a small fortified city just west of the Jordan River named Jericho. Last week we saw how the Lord helped his people uh, take the city by miraculously causing its walls 25 feet high and 20 feet thick to collapse. The Lord also provided some help from an unlikely source in the days leading up to the attack on Jericho. And so we pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Jatim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And... The gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Here's the first truth on your outline that we can learn from this story, and that is that the Lord calls people to saving faith from the most unlikely places. The Lord calls people to saving faith from the most unlikely places. There has been some debate over the years about whether Rahab was justified in her lying 
in order to protect the Lord's spies. Questions have been raised, such as, are there situations in which lying might be acceptable? Or isn't deception an unavoidable part of war? Or another question that's been raised is, wouldn't the spies have perished if she had told the truth? Well, the answer to these good questions are no, 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 and no. God hates lying. And so to excuse her lying would be to condone what he condemns. And to doubt whether the Lord's plan could have been pulled off without Rahab's sin diminishes the Lord's sovereign power. The Lord's plans do not depend on us. He can do whatever he wants and he can get it done any way he wants to. Job 9, 12, Psalm 135, verse 6, all said the Lord does as he pleases. No one can stop him. Not even our sin, not even our fear, or not even if we choose not to be available. Sorry, I just said a double negative. That doesn't make it a positive, though. So why did she do it? Why did she lie? I think she lied because this was just after she had become a new believer in Yahweh. And just like any new believer, just like you and just like me, she hadn't walked with the Lord long enough to mature spiritually and grow in personal holiness. So the mentioning of Rahab's lie is further proof that, well, the Bible, it's not censored like some made-for-TV Hallmark Hallmark movie. It's the Bible's real. It's raw. It's unfiltered. It, 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 Rahab's lie is another reminder that God uses sinful, imperfect people to achieve his plans. He uses them and is able to accomplish his will despite their sin. Therefore, the mentioning of Rahab's lie is good news for all of us. Because it means that the Lord can even use people like me and you. Next, we see in verse 6 that she hid them with the stalks of flax on the roof. Well, uh, back then, flax stalks were pulled from the fields at harvest time in the ancient Middle East. They were then soaked in water for three to four weeks to separate the fibers and then dried in the sun. And once they were dry, the fibers were used to make linen cloth. And so it was just a normal part of daily operations back then, and she saw an opportunity to stash the spies upstairs on the roof, and uh, it just happened to be nothing just happens. It was the right time of year. God sovereignly ordained that too, I think. Next, look at verse 8 with me. So before the men were laying down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan." the Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, 
He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I think what we see here in verses 8 through 11 appears to be a portion of Rahab's conversion testimony. There's a profession of faith and, and a, an acceptance or an identification of who the Lord is. Now, although her entire city developed a fear of the Lord, she's the only one that responded in faith. Verse 11, I think, has her profession of faith. The Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So not only is this another example of the Lord working in advance ahead of his people, just like in Jonah. You remember Jonah when he was told to go and preach to the Ninevites, a wicked, barbaric people that Jonah did not want to see saved. Jonah didn't want them saved. He wanted them to suffer God's wrath. He wanted justice for his people because of what the Ninevites had done to his people. And then Jonah also feared for his own life. But what Jonah didn't know is that God was already working in Nineveh. And so after a short detour in a whale, he goes and he preaches. Revival breaks out. The whole city gets saved. When the Lord needed a church planner, and the author of the New Testament, an author too, helped write the New Testament, he chose a Pharisee and a Christian killer named Saul. When Jesus was thirsty and he broke social etiquette and prejudices by leading the adulterous woman at the well in John 4 to faith, all these examples of the prostitute in Jericho, Rahab, and then you've got Saul, and you've got uh, the woman at the well, and I could go on and on and on. They are all examples of how the Lord shows grace and mercy to pagan people, not because they deserve it, but because he is gracious and merciful. It's another reminder that there's nothing you can do or I can do to be qualified to have a relationship with the Lord. In Rahab's conversion, there's another reminder, and that is that the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. It's inclusive in that the benefits of the gospel are available to everybody. It doesn't matter who you are, where your family is from, where you grew up, where you live, or what sins you committed. If you're willing to repent of your sin and trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then the gospel's for you. Now, the gospel is also exclusive in that it's not for every living thing. The gospel discriminates in that it's only for sinners. Thus, Jesus didn't die for wildlife, marine life, plant life, the stars, the planets, your cat, or my dog. The rest of God's creation does what God created them to do all the time. It was only people, sinners, that rebel against God that needed a Savior. Because we don't do what God wants us to do all the time. And so the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive. Exclusive. 
Next, if you would, look at chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. And so, this conversation between Rahab and the spies on the roof of her home continues. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Here's the second point in your outline, the second truth we can learn from the passage, and that is that living faith produces the courage to boldly live by faith. By the way, there's a typo on your outline. I apologize. It says saving faith by number two. It should say living faith. I'll correct that on the PDF version that goes up on our website. So living faith produces the courage to boldly live by faith. We find out in these verses that Rahab is a very bold woman. After preventing the spies from being discovered, she in essence says, let's make a deal. Please swear to me by the Lord. That's three key words, prepositional phrase I have underlined in my Bible. She invokes the Lord's name in making a covenant with the two spies. She, in essence, makes the Lord a witness and a guarantor of the promise attached to the oath. This was a common practice in the Old Testament. It basically provided accountability for both parties in the covenant or the oath. In essence, making them think twice before backing out, because if they back out, they'd have to deal with the Lord. Now, Rahab demonstrates an audacious living faith in at least two ways. First, she puts herself and her family at considerable risk with her own people. Have you thought about that? I mean, what if... What if, can you imagine what her people would have done to her if they had known she helped the enemy complete their invasion plans? Not only was she a woman, but she's also a prostitute. So she had no social standing in the city. She had no wealth, and she had no husband to protect her. Second, she demonstrates an audacious living faith by putting herself and her family at considerable risk by making a deal with the enemy. The spies could have killed her at once, like we see in movies, in order to cover their tracks, make sure that she didn't leak any plans to the Jericho military. Once she shows them the way out of the city, they could have eliminated her, but they didn't. So what enabled Rahab to take these bold risks? Well, it was her confidence in her own, it was not her confidence in her own people, excuse me, and nor was it her confidence in Hebrew spies. It was simply her confidence in the Lord. The Lord was all she had, and the Lord was all she needed. Not only did her living faith give her boldness, but it also gave her unselfishness. Notice in the text how she became concerned about her family and their well-being. She wanted them spiritually safe and physically safe. This is similar to 
Andrew, in John chapter 1, after he came to faith in Christ, he went and brought his brother Simon to Jesus. And then there was the leper who went home to tell everyone he met what Jesus had done for him in Mark chapter 1. Rahab's conversion made her immediately concerned for the spiritual and physical well-being of her family. She was bold. She was audacious. I read a story this week as I was preparing this message and doing research. I read a story about the pioneer evangelist Peter Cartwright. He was a uh, well-known traveling evangelist in the 19th century. He spent 70 years serving the Lord and always preached the word of God without fear or favor. One Sunday he was asked to speak at a Methodist church in the southern part of the United States. And during the song just before the message, the home church's pastor whispered to Cartwright that Andrew Jackson had just entered the sanctuary. And so he cautioned Cartwright to be careful what he said, lest he offend their famous guest. The evangelist, however, knowing that the fear of man is a snare, as it says in Proverbs, was determined not to compromise the truth. He also knew that great leaders need the Lord just as much as anyone, and so he boldly proclaimed the gospel. In fact, halfway through his sermon, he said, I understand that Andrew Jackson is president of the congregation today. If he does not repent of his sins and accept Jesus Christ as his personal Savior, he will be just as lost as anyone else who has never asked God for his forgiveness. How would you like it if I did that here on some Sundays? Just called out some people by name? <laughs> well, instead of becoming angry, Jackson actually admired the preacher for his boldness and courage. He listened with keen interest to the message and felt deep conviction, such deep conviction that after the service, Cartwright was able to lead the future president to the Lord. And from that day forward, the two men became good friends. But it's another reminder, just as the story of Rahab is, that living faith provides the courage needed to obey the Lord. Even when it's hard, even when it's scary, even when we might have to take a risk and we don't know what will happen, living faith gives us the courage to do so. Well, in verse 14, the conditions of this covenant oath between the two sides is, are set. Notice it says, if you do not tell this business of ours, then, see, if, then, when the Lord gives us the land, we'll deal kindly and faithfully with you. If you do this, then we will do that. Deal. Throughout the rest of chapter 2, in the remaining verses, Rahab helps the spies escape over the city's wall by giving them a rope and giving them some directions on where to go. And the spies instruct her to tie a scarlet rope to the window of her house so that the Israelite army will know which dwelling to spare after the invasion. And when the men returned to Joshua, they told him, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Lord is with us, the people of Jericho are afraid of us, we're ready to go on your command. Next, if you would, turn to Joshua chapter 6, where we get the rest, the rest of the story. 
And as you turn there, I'll just give you a quick review of what happens between chapter 2 and chapter 6. In chapter 3, the Lord parts the um, Jordan River for the Israelites so they can cross all two million of them. In chapter 4, they built a memorial to commemorate the possession of the promised land or their going out to possess it. In chapter 5, the people prepared themselves spiritually for their military campaign. And then in chapter 6, as we learned last week, the Lord instructs the priests and a few armed men to march around Jericho for seven days. On the seventh day, the wall around Jericho collapses. The army enters the city to destroy everything as the Lord commanded. And we pick off Excuse me, we pick up where we left off last week with chapter 6, verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from Joshua, whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Here's the last point on your outline. Number three, living faith provides the courage to faithfully keep your word. Living faith provides the courage to faithfully keep your word. As I mentioned earlier, both Rahab and the spies had to step out in faith and trust the Lord and each other. She kept her word to the spies, and they kept their word to her. Unfortunately, keeping one's word is becoming less and less common today. In fact, it seems to becoming normal to not keep your word. Not long ago, I read an article in the New York Times titled, The Aspirational RSVP, Saying Yes When You Mean No. It was written by a manners expert, and the article unpacks the multifaceted issue that's been developing in our culture in recent years of saying yes or maybe to an invitation you have no intention of actually accepting. Wedding couples and party hosts and caterers are now struggling to figure out exactly what people mean when they RSVP. Because not only are financial resources limited, so is space. For example, uh, because it's not possible to invite everybody to a wedding or to a party or a dinner, when someone gives an aspirational RSVP, they are taking a seat that could have been offered to someone else who would have actually come. And I could go on and on and give several other examples of why this creates problems, but the article speculates that people have become glib with their responses because they either want to show support for the event or they are afraid to say no to the invitation. In the end, the author concludes 
that yes is the new maybe, and maybe is the new no. Although I thought this New York Times article was well-written and well-timed, I think we need to make sure we call behaviors that God's word calls, we need to use the same labels God's word does. God's word calls making an aspirational RSVP dishonesty. It's deceptive. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that we should let our yes be yes and our no be no. Anything more comes from evil, he said. A contemporary paraphrase of this verse, it's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, I think would be this, mean what you say and say what you mean. And so for the professing Christ follower, anything less is unacceptable to the Lord. I've observed over the years that people who break their word often do so because they fear man. But people who keep their word do so because they fear the Lord. So, living faith provides the courage to faithfully keep your word. More on this in a minute. Rahab leaves an unlikely legacy. And I need to mention this before we close. The Lord wasn't done using Rahab after the victory in Jericho. Eventually, she married a man named Salmon, an Israelite from the tribe of Judah. They had children, one of whom was Boaz, the husband of Ruth. Out of her bloodline comes King David and eventually Joseph, the legal father to Jesus. And so, as you see on your outline, in Matthew 1, 5, Matthew chapter 1, uh, the genealogy of Jesus is listed, and Rahab is mentioned in that genealogy as an ascendant to King David and Jesus. And then in James chapter 2, verse 25, when James is, is talking about what real faith in Jesus Christ looks like, and James says that faith without works is dead faith, and that authentic, real faith in Jesus Christ produces good works, he uses two people as an example, Abraham and Rahab. What a tremendous honor for a prostitute from a wicked, condemned pagan nation. Rahab is another example of an unlikely person God used because she was completely sold out to him. Well, applications. The first application that comes to mind is this. Be courageous by God's grace. We know from 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Lord has not called believers to have a spirit of fear and timidity. Be courageous. And I'm going to encourage you to write down Joshua 1.9 as a reference to look up later. Someone once said that courage is fear that has said its prayers. I love that. 
Thus, having courage is not the absence of fear, but rather facing fear with the Lord's help. Interestingly, being courageous is what the Lord encouraged Joshua to be when he took over for Moses. Obviously, he was big shoes or big sandals to fill. Uh, I would have been intimidated too. And thus, in Joshua 1.9, the Lord tells Joshua to, to be courageous. I am with you. It takes courage to interrupt another believer who's sharing gossip with you and to ask them, would the person you're talking about be okay if you shared this with me? That takes courage. It takes courage to lovingly confront another believer who sinned against you so you can reconcile your relationship, to have that hard conversation. It takes courage for a husband to be the spiritual leader of his family in a culture that makes dads the brunt of the joke on TV sitcoms. It also takes courage for a wife to submit to her husband in a culture that screams women should be asserting their rights no matter the cost. And it takes courage to gently share the gospel with an unbeliever even though it might change your relationship or end it. However, the courage that all these examples require is pleasing to the Lord. And so I just have to ask the question, is there, is there something the Lord has been telling you to do that would require courage? Maybe it's accepting Christ as your Savior for the first time. Maybe it's becoming a member here at Vanguard. Maybe it's serving faithfully, on a consistent basis somewhere here at Vanguard. Maybe it's sharing the gospel with your parents. I want to encourage you to do what the Lord's asking you to do. Here's a second application that comes to mind from the passages we looked at today. Keep your word by God's grace. I know that this can sometimes be easier said than done, but in Psalm 15, 4, I want to encourage you to write that reference down. David says, one of the things that people do who walk closely with the Lord is they keep their word even when it's hard. The phrase he uses is, they swear to their own hurt. It means that godly Christ followers don't make commitments they can't keep, and they keep the ones they make. Even if it's difficult or inconvenient. That means, that means if you have no intention of calling somebody up, then don't say, hey, I'll give you the call this week. It means that if you have no intention of praying for somebody, don't say, hey, I'll be praying for you. And it means if you say, I'll be praying for you, and you know you're forgetful, you better write it down. Or, something else I've done from time to time is I just pray for them right then and there. Can I pray for you right now? And of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't want to forget to pray for them. Now, please don't accuse me of that if I pray for you on the spot. I just realized that could backfire on me. Pastor, are you doing this right now because you're going to forget about me this week? <laughs> no. 
It means if you have no intention of showing up at an event you've been invited to, then don't say, yeah, I'll come. Because that's dishonest. And if things change, because life does happen, there are things that come up that might prohibit you from keeping your word. Then you put your grown-up pants on, you make a phone call, and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I know I said I'd be there, but I can't because this happened, I apologize. But it also means you honor the Lord by not going with option B that came up later because you think option B is better than option A. So even though you committed to option A, some church event, but then a friend of yours calls up and says, hey man, you want to go to the Dodgers game? I got box seats in the clubhouse and everything. You don't go for option B because you want to have integrity and you made a commitment. One of the words that should never, ever, ever, never, ever be used to describe a Christ follower is flaky. And one of the things that should never be questioned about a Christ follower is the value of their word. So, I have to ask the question, is there an area in your life in which you need to recommit to keeping your word? Or is there a commitment that you need to recommit to keeping? And if it's going to be hard or it's going to be inconvenient or costly, ask the Lord to help you. But you still need to do it. So, the famous movie actor John Wayne once said, Courage is being scared to death and then saddling up anyway. And I would add that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then you can saddle up knowing that he is riding with you. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we've been reminded this morning there's a reason why you call us sheep. We are naturally afraid, timid. We easily wander. We bounce about. We sometimes lack intentionality. Like sheep, we seem to have ADD. We, we just go from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Lord, we just ask, please, would you help us by your grace and by your spirit to be men and women of integrity. Help us, Lord, to be men and women who keep our word even when it's hard, even when it might cost us, even when it's unpopular. Father, also, would you help us to be courageous with your help? Lord, the world thinks and perceives of the church as a passive, weak organization or group of people. But Lord, we know that's not what you want us to be. You want us to be bold, 
and confident and courageous. So Father, please, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to change that perception in the world? And I just ask, please, Lord, if, if there is anyone here today that has been putting off, procrastinating, doing something because it's risky or it's going to be hard and they lack the courage, Lord, please, would you help them to step out in faith, to obey you, and to trust you with the results. Finally, Lord, we thank you most of all for those of us who know Christ as our Savior. Thanks, Lord, for taking a risk on us. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for us, for using other people that knew you to share the gospel with us. They overcame their fears to share the gospel with us, not caring about what we would think of them, but only caring about how to please you. And we praise you for them. Please, Father, as we go into our week and we start a new week in school and work and get back into our busy routine, would you, by your Spirit, bring back to our minds the truths that we heard today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.